Welcome to Diary of a Crowdfunded Film, proudly in collaboration with Brick Studios. I'm Jose Pusella. Join me as I take you on this audio journey with Heath Davis on the making of his new crowdfunded film, Christmas. As you've heard from the intro, I'm not Troy McClure, so you won't remember me from such podcasts as My Little Ponytail, The Steven Seagal Story, or Let It Snow, A Pablo Escobar Christmas. Instead, hello and welcome to the first episode of my podcast debut with this series, The Diary of a Crowdfunded Film, The Christmas Special. Think of this podcast as the audio equivalent of the special features on a DVD. I'm your host, Jose Pusella, the non-union Australian-Uruguayan equivalent of Senor Spielbergo, and joining me is legendary human and acclaimed indie Aussie film director, known for his films Broke, Book Week and Locust, Mr. Heath Davies. How are you, Heath? And thank you for joining uh-huh. me. Hello, thank you for having me. What a what a uh, what a sweet introduction. So I, <laughs> I am curious of the Steven Seagal podcast. I'll have to check that one out. Though. Yeah, I think um it might be worth doing, but this is the one we're here for. Um, I'm are. super pumped for this opportunity. And can I start by reading the synopsis um, of yeah. the new from Christmas? So you totally can. And can I just tell you, I do have Please. a Steven Seagal story, but that can happen <laughs> in the episodes down the line. So. I love it. So we'll, we're going to bookmark that when I come back to it. Um, so the synopsis we have is a washed up actor takes a job as a suburban shopping center center where he encounters his estranged daughter and child in line for a photo. Um, so firstly, the title Chris Mess. Um, I love the plan words simultaneously. You know, when you go below its comedic surface, there are themes of mental health, um, family and forgiveness that underpin the essence of this story. Um, so what was the inspiration behind this story, Heath? Uh, well, um, I was watching a lot of Christmas movies. Um, now I've got a, a, a young daughter and uh, a partner who's very Christmassy. And I kind of religiously watched stacks of Christmas movies over the Christmas break and just um, really couldn't get into any of them. And I couldn't identify with, with any of them. Um, and especially how everybody's lives look so neat and tidy kind of like you know the presents with the perfect wrapping and the bow tie and I was like this is so not any Christmas that I know of and anyone that I know of also and I always was curious as to why um you know I know people at that time of the year obviously want to have a laugh and a feel good but um you can still be challenged a little bit and make something that you can identify with and yeah, it sort of stemmed from there, and I just thought Christmas is such an interesting setting in terms of storytelling because it's that crunch time of the year in everybody's life where yeah. we kind of dread. It's usually like a you know a three month window before December where you start to go, "Oh shit, Christmas is coming," and that's going to mean you um, you know have to unite with often people that. Um, you don't get along with or people that you've been trying to avoid or yes. people that, you know, often don't accept you for who you are. And so all those trials and tribulations, you know, that are synonymous with family all come to a head at this point where we've solved this ideal, um, you know, the anxiety is already there of the perfect life and we watch it and see it. And, uh, you know, whether it's advertising, whether it's films, whether it's TV shows, whatever it is, and, um, I kind of just wanted to invert that and basically say, you know, to all the people that 
are out there and, uh, and don't find Christmas the most joyous of the seasons of occasions that it's okay, you're not alone. Um, and we're going to make a film that kind of celebrates that. And that's generally how the film sort of evolved. Uh, I've had that in the back of my head for quite some time, um, just that setting, because I always liked the concept of it and I always sort of saw the facade of it. And then what was interesting was um, Steve Lamarckin, who's been in every one of my films, is a good yes. friend and great actor. Um, he told me a story a few years ago, and it's always sort of been like a jingle bell in the back of my head. Where his first job out of um, out of film school was as a mall shopping centre Santa. Um, ironically, in my hometown in Penrith, so he went to Theatre Nepean, um, which was kind of like the rivals of NIDA. And it was a great, great theatre school. Lots of great actors like Joel Edgerton and David Wenham went through there with Steve. And, um, so Steve got this job over everybody as the mall Santa. So um, and just that concept of this actor who has great ambitions, forced to, you know, be a Santa. Always, I, I just saw the humour and the irony in that. And... Um, yeah, and there was a lot of crazy stories that he told me about that. So I just thought uh, maybe I could tell this story um, now that I think is more timely and topical, um, and that's the setting. And then once you have the setting and once you have the characters, um, then I really think strongly about theme and then the narrative and the plots, they kind of start to come to you somewhat. So, um, right. yeah, so it's been in my head for quite a long time, but getting the draft out, the first draft was quite quick. It was just a matter of finding the time to do it. Right. No, I like the way that you actually walked us through your writing process. Were there any elements that perhaps in this draft or um, in this version of the script that didn't make it? And are there any that you might be able to share? Uh, just in terms of the real life stuff. Yeah. There's, when I talk about the real life, it's sort of like, you know, it's just take a little bit of DNA from different yes. different areas and different characters or different people or different stories. And you steal a bit from that, you bring it over here, then you're kind of like the scientist who's, you know, in the lab with the little test tubes and whatnot <laughs> trying to create the perfect formula. So there is a lot of that that goes into it. And then all of a sudden that fits your story and your world. So, um, but I give my, I always sort of give myself parameters, especially on these small films. So you could go off and tell this brawling tale that crosses countries like Love Actually or something like that. But then you've got this big budget movie, but I really wanted to make something intimate um, and something that was really set around one or two locations. Because Christmas is that period of time where you don't do a lot. Um, you sort of stay at home a lot and you're home and that's is kind of the setting for where all the stories and the drama takes pl takes place. So I knew that was sort of the infrastructure that I wanted to play with right. um, and I sort of knew the characters as well. And once they come together in that world, it's, just, it's a bit of a magic that happens. All of a sudden they start to take over and your job as the writer for me is to sort of step out of their way somewhat. So, um, yeah, and so we've... I knew it was going to be some kind of tale of forgiveness, redemption, all those beautiful Christmas themes um, and some interesting, diverse characters. I, I kind of like the concept of throwing, because without giving too much away and sure. not everybody has seen the film because we haven't made it or read the script, but it's really the kind of 
concept. It's, what, the heart of it is the concept of families. Can they be made or are they all just biological? And we've got this story of kind of strangers who are forced together uh, in this period of time and they become a family um, while our protagonist is trying to reconnect with his biological family. So it deals with that concept of friends and family and what is a family, what makes a family, um, and all those uh, all those things relating to sort of community that we all sort of crave, especially at that time of, uh, you know, and a sense of belonging, especially at that time of year. So, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it's all in, yeah, it's all in their sprinkles. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. Am I rambling? But um, hopefully I answered the question. <laughs> no, you did. Um, look, it's the, the way I'm trying to also approach this for everyone is, we'll look at these, you know, questions that are coming kind of as the development or pre-production stage, because that's where the film is still at at this point. Um, yeah. Or would you say that the script's been locked off or do you leave yourself open to some inspiration and welcome accidents? Uh, it's not locked off. This is, it's, a, it's very close to being locked off. It's, the, script, the scripts are always evolving, especially, on a, you know, when you're going into camera and you're like, oh, that location is going to work so much better when you're out doing the scout or, wow, this is going to work so much better or when you're putting it together, all these uh, opportunities come at you and they, sometimes they're too good to ignore. But, again, the platform's there. So, like, I'm not a never afraid to give an early draft out to people because my early drafts are pretty developed, but right. it gives people an understanding of the story. So... You're either going to read this and go, ah, oh, it's not for me. I don't really care for the story. Or you do care for the story and the changes will be minor. There'll be a bit of triage here and there. And be like, sure. oh, but I'm not, I'm not sold on this scene or that scene. And a lot of people are always afraid of doing that. But your story will really never change fundamentally. You'll just improve scenes, iron out some issues here and there. But the characters, the stories, the goals, all the genetics, you know, of a of a tale generally are there from draft one, and people will either warm to it or they won't. Um, so where we are right now is, I know I've got to make some changes. I've got to shave some pages off. I think it's a bit long at the moment, right. but I'm very collaborative with these with these films because I want some realism. I'm a real big believer in realism and truth in these. So this week we're going to get together with the cast and. We do a table read and they bring their ideas and their notes and, and I'll encourage them to um, just pick from their garden because I really want them to bring a lot of their own life into these characters. I've written specifically for them so I have an idea of who I think they are and what I think yes. they are capable of and I'm encouraging them to explore that little bit of fossicking and all of a sudden they come back with some great ideas and you start to go, oh, wow. And it's, it's got, it's, it is like building a cake. You've sort of got the ingredients there and you've got the layers, but now it's that time where you put the icing and the sugar, all the nice things and the panache that people love. So it's a, it's a fun time. And so, but, you know, even on the day, sometimes we'll be reading and I'll be doing a scene and it might be playing too long or it's just not working for whatever either and I'll just cut it. Um, so you're never too precious. Same within the edit. Sometimes you're like, oh, this works, but in the context of, all the other scenes that come before it and come after it, it's not working as well as you thought it would. So, um, yeah, scripts are an ever-evolving sort of beast, but at these small budgets, it's it's imperative that you get it as close as you can um, to the final draft 
um, because you don't really have the time or the money to waste a day of filming on things that, you know, aren't going to make the final cut. So um, it's really cosmetic changes from from when pre-production starts. So, but there'll be a decent, probably 30% uh, facelift to the to the draft after right. we sit together on Friday. So, yeah. And obviously, for those listeners who are new to Heath's work, there are two re- returning cast members, as you've mentioned. Uh, one, which is a Book Week alum, Susan Pryor, and obviously your longtime collaborator, Steve. Now, who was reading Book Week, Broken Locusts, what I wanted to know, do you have, is there kind of a newbie that's rounding this ensemble cast? There, uh, Yeah, well, there is, who has actually never acted before. So I'm probably taking uh, one of the biggest creative risks I have when it comes to making a film. Um, but what I've learned after three films is you follow your instincts and every time I've kind of deviated away from, from actually following an instinct, things have actually not worked out for the best. So... I just had a, a feeling that um, Hannah Joy, who's the lead singer of one of my favourite bands, The Middle Kids, um, yeah, who are just really just exploding at the moment, especially internationally in the US. So got a, a sh- if it wasn't for COVID, they'd be doing a big tour of the of the US and meant to be based there now. But wow. um, hopefully that'll change again for them. But they, they've just got a new record out and the records, they've been playing, you know, Jimmy Kimmel and Jimmy Fallon wow. and James Corden. So they've got a big reach, but I didn't really know her that well and I just had a feeling that as an artist you might connect to um, another creative medium and another challenge, and she did. So I wrote this, again, I wrote this character with her in mind. Right, and, okay. And then said, hey, I've written you into a film. And <laughs> I know you've never acted before, but I think you could be great. So, And we've sat down and we've discussed it. She's done a few reads. We, we're working with her and it's just now a matter. I know she's got it in her and I know. And it's not a massive stretch. She's a musician playing a musician in this film. So um, a lot of that I think she can identify with and it's performing. So it's just a matter of getting her to be comfortable and feel comfortable enough to be vulnerable and just, again, to, you know, dig into her garden and, and kind of make this character herself. So if she plays herself, the, her character will work. And it's quite it's quite a scene-stealing character. She's... She's yeah owns all the moments. So if we pull it off, um, you know, it's got the Lady Gaga, a star is born um, result Lovely. waiting to happen on a on a small scale, obviously because sure. we don't have Bradley Cooper. But you just <laughs> never know where an independent film's going to go. But I don't think about that. I just think about success, as in people do their job to the best of their ability in the movies. Cool, because you can never control how many eyeballs going to get to it. Now you don't have Bradley Cooper, but you've got Steve. Um, so I'm sure he will. <laughs> Steve Lamarck one, who's who uh but I've got a guy from Penrith named Brad Cooper who I might stick in there. Um different Bradley Cooper, but you know, we'll just pretend that he's the other guy. So yeah, he owns good. a tr- he owns a Ute too, so he'll be handy when it comes to just carrying Absolutely. camera gear and stuff. Yeah. Um well look, you mentioned so Hannah's it's pretty much her first home acting. So do you encourage um, improv on the day or do you kind of try to, you know, workshop yeah, that before? Well, yeah, uh, especially well, we, we read it, but there's, an, there's always this and every act is different. That's one of the hardest jobs as a director is every act is different. They have a different process and you've got to have the ability to adapt um, to all of them and make them feel 
not just the most important person in the world, but comfortable. And sometimes, um, you know, one process doesn't really gel with the other and you've got to find the middle ground to make sure everybody is feeling comfortable because if they're not comfortable, that trust goes out the window and then you end up with something false. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's our job right now is sort of getting her just comfortable. And on the day it's, it's you don't want to there's a there's a bit of overkill that can sometimes happen too because i don't like performing in my films i'm a say it don't play it director when it feels like acting i just say you're acting and right. we don't want any of that so you want it natural and, and when you actually rehearse too much all of a sudden um it starts to become too self-aware in, in some ways so you want them to know the lines forget about them and then speak them as if it's the first time they've actually said them. It's it's not an easy task, but what I've learned is too much rehearsal can stifle that sort of uh, creativity and just that um, spontaneity and somewhat. So, but yeah, you never turn up without people knowing where they're going. Um, but you still want to have that little bit of you know surprise and adventure um, for them and go, okay, he's. I kind of just. With the way I saw the directors turn up on the day, and and I remember well, you don't have a lot of time, so time is money in filmmaking. So you turn up on the day, and I kind of show the the, the cast here. Hey, here's where we're filming. Um, this is the location. Here's how I've blocked it in my head, and, yes. and here's how we've storyboarded it. So this is where I think this line's going to happen, and this is where I think the camera's going to be for all these. Uh, the coverage for these scenes and I don't shoot a lot of coverage I really shoot for the edit so that's how uh, you can make good films on the cheap as well you got to be super super prepared when it comes to your vision and not just shooting so much footage and then coming back to the poor old editor and say hey man here's all the footage now go make it happen <laughs> yeah he's so, 180 think, hours <laughs> that's right but I think about the philosophy of each scene and the point of view where whose story it is and who's going to be reacting on this line, all of that comes into it. So, but then, you know, I take the actors through it and then they all do a rehearsal and then they start to get comfortable. And sometimes what I've proposed um, doesn't work. So I adapt, you always adapt to them. So I always say, don't worry, the camera's going to follow you, um, which is what it does. And then we figure it out and then we light it because the DP is going to need to know where, everyone's going to be standing. And then once we light it, it's a few hours after that and go time. So that's sort of how it works. Do you think there'll be any, will there be any uh, gorilla um, style or gorilla shots in this? Or No gorillas in this film. We're going to, um, <laughs> no animals will be harmed. Just Santa Claus. <laughs> Man, no <let's>... reindeer. Ah, <laughs> uh, the gorillas, right? Yeah, um, the gorillas. Well, Eager. It would be cool to stick a GoPro on an actual gorilla. I've always thought that might be interesting. Um, there will be gorilla filmmaking. There's gorilla filmmaking on big budgets. Nomad Land just won best film, and the beauty of Nomad Land is most of it's gorilla filmmaking. Wow! They got a great. They got a great actor. They got a chunk of money, not a big amount, but enough. Enough, and a bunch of people jumped in their camper vans and they drove across America and filmed as they went. And they got Francis McDormand to jump out and start mixing with real people. And then they filmed her as this all took place. So there's a real element of uh, all gorilla, but it's a real element of sort of doco style as well. But it was all 
free plans as much yes. as you can. Um, but that's filmmaking. Like, yeah. that's what you want. That's kind of like my favourite musicians who sometimes they jam in rehearsal or even on stage. Some of my favourite bands never rehearse. They just get up on stage and they play and then the magic comes and they surprise themselves and you can, and you watch them between each other. I know a lot of musicians and I see some of my friends play and they have these, you know, little smiles and jokes to one another because they know they've just hit something that they never, you know, have hit before. Um, and that generally happens on the day. It's like great athletes who own the big moments and filmmaking is, you know, very much like that. It's very jazz-like. Um, yeah, look, depending on your process. So I'm sure Jurassic Park 7 is not, you know, made this way, but um, <laughs> dinosaurs can be difficult to see. And let's say... And not on a budget that, um, you know, if there was a Jurassic uh, or the Jurassic 7 that's coming. Because, you know, you're you're used to working on smaller budgets. Um, and is it, a I guess, an element of comfortability um, that you decided to go back to crowd, crowdfunding for this one? Um, what, was the, what was the reason behind that? Well, uh, because this was, we had another film that, there's a couple of million dollar budget with some really good international actors. It's been stalled, COVID stalled, I guess, like a lot of other projects. The prime investor um, hit a snag and that meant we lost an actor because of availability. All right. the slippery slope and all the variables that come with making a film at a big budget or a, a proper budget that's financed the traditional ways. Um, there's a lot of hope and a lot of hit and miss when it comes to that because... There's a lot of variables that you can't control and you're just hoping that people um, stick to their word. Um, there's a lot of you're out of control and, I, and I've never really been a fan of that. So we, for this is a little bit of therapy after a few years of not making something um, and a whole year of about creating on anything with my collaborators and mates, we were like, it's time to do something, even with audiences right. and, a lot of the people that have got behind us before, there's, we were, everybody needs something a little bit fresh and exciting and that's kind of what Christmas is, a little bit of positivity and hope in the Christmas, forthcoming Christmas after a crappy last Christmas and year of lockdown. <laughs> yeah. um, but also, yeah, it's hard to get money for independent films at the moment. So um, we just thought I had some loyal followers and we didn't need a lot. So this film... If, if somebody came to me and said, here's $10 million, and, you know, I wouldn't try to use all 10 because it would probably be a pretty bad investment unless you had a movie star. So unless you paid Bradley Cooper $9 million right. and you had one to make it, then all of a sudden it might be fine. It might be um, a good investment. But not every film can be made this way. But this one um, didn't need a lot and it had that sort of, it just had that all the sensibilities for community project and little underdog movie and, um, we just thought we've had a lot of loyal followers before and if we can get half of what we need that way, um, then we'll be able to just go off and make it, um, keep it small and keep it real and keep it fiscally responsible too. Um, so I know that I know all the numbers of filmmaking and what's a responsible budget, what's not a responsible budget, what can make a bit of money and that's all the boring stuff, unfortunately, that you need to know because films are a business, but they didn't yeah, teach it at right. film school. None of the artists got into it for that reason. We just wanted to make stories and tell yeah. stories. And 
and collaborate and make stuff. And then all of a sudden, that's the beauty of short films. Nobody cares what your budget was or what your short film made because nobody does make anything. Um, sometimes you win an award or you get a distributor who puts it on and you get some um, little kickbacks here and there. But on a feature film, the first question is the economics of it. Uh, it's just that on a bigger budget it just becomes really tiresome and cumbersome and all the things that you love about it, they, you start to chip away and you compromise and you compromise until you're left with something that might get made but not even near what you wanted to make. So, At this point in time, how are you feeling um, with the journey for Christmas in comparison to where you would have been, let's say, for book week? Uh, well, with... I'm feeling pretty good, only because it's always nerve-wracking. When I was, we thought, far out with the crowdfunding again, this is like the third time where people are going to just say piss off. <laughs> but um, I, and some of them have to put on them. I'd probably tell me to piss off too. Um, but I've just seen what the films have done and the reaction to them, and people start to really understand what we're doing and how we do it. Um, and a lot of them were really encouraging. So and then I had a great you know, younger producer, Daniel, come on board. And a lot of people, when we proposed the idea, were really supportive. So, because um, I was a bit reluctant. And then I thought, well, you know what? There's going to be a lot of better. The, the goodwill will outweigh the negativity. So, um, but you, you know, you put your balls out there and it's anxiety inducing. But, um, but I've been around a few times. So there's that comfort of experience yeah. and knowing this is how it works. But, the times have changed so but you know we've raised in the first couple of weeks more than what we did all up and book week and broke so that's pretty awesome yeah that's um, very positive yeah so we still need more and you know that's just the minimum gap so it'd be good to have a little oh my god if we hit that and we can make it but a bit more would be you know there's less you start to breathe a little bit easier but you know the filmmakers don't get paid up front from these films which we hope that we'll make a good film um, and share it with everybody and then hopefully we might be able to sell it or people license it and even then you don't make much money. So it's really about the love of it. Um, and that's why the sort of crowdfunding kind of makes sense because I think most people know, um, you know, it's an exciting thing. They buy into it. Um, they like to see good films and yet that's, we're very collaborative with it, but I think everybody at the end of the day, everybody knows, you know, nobody get makes millions of dollars out of these small independent films yeah. now because if you did, you wouldn't be doing it. So, That's true. Yeah. But I think it is the feel you mentioned it. I mean, the movie, which a lot of it has to do with family, and there's a you know, there's a film community that is almost like a family as well. And that's this yeah. whole collaborative effort. Um especially absolutely, especially now more than ever, because indie films landscape is dying and not many people go the cinemas are you know struggling to get indie films even played and people are watching them at home so the community of actually watching a film in it within a community a forum of people is rare so um but you know i've got friends who are musicians and vinyl selling again and hard pack books are selling again so there are other people out there but the crowdfunding helps you find those people and you start to build an audience and they get emotionally invested and they help you build the audience. And that's the coolest part of it. So from day one, you actually announce your movie and they're there the whole way. So by the time it comes out, hopefully snowballs, it's built and built and it's word of mouth and you've got the loyal people who are going to help you, um, who are proud of it and help you push it because you're not going to have the big, 
marketing budgets of the big films. You, you're relying on word of mouth and the social media and all that. So that's why crowdfunding is really important for independent filmmakers because you're not going off making your film and then going, oh, wow, uh, we've got a movie, guys, you know. So you spent a good year or so already, you know, I guess promoting it or informing people that you've got something coming. And people are get very curious and excited about that process. So, and we're very open to inviting people to come in and be a part of it. Is there a date that's expected for uh, actually rolling? So principal photography? Well, we haven't locked, not yet, but we've got a window. You always got to have a window. Yes. Um, and July is our window because I, and nobody's pressuring us to do this. We do have a distributor and we're talking to some streamers and, and TV networks, but I kind of want to get this at the cinemas and get this on one of the streaming platforms for Christmas because that would make sense. Yeah. So, but our, we're talking with our distributor about November cinema screens and then hopefully fast tracking it to, um, you know, a Stan or a Netflix or whatever around December. Um, but that's they're going to wait and look at the film. They know about it because um, we don't have movie stars in it. Nobody commits because um, they don't have to. Um, right. So, but they know about it and they'll watch it and then not, we'll show them a early cut um, so we can plan for that. But yeah, I'm, I'm mostly excited about the cinemas because that will be something fun at the end of the year and it'll be hot and people will be able to go out and comedies don't get made anymore and the woke culture sort of destroyed that. So you get a forum of people coming together and they can sit in the cinema and have a good time and laugh and be moved. And so that's, that's what I still like more than ever. But the modern world is, you know, the reality is most people watch these things on their home devices. So um, it would be cool to be able to give them that opportunity, especially at Christmas. And, you know, it might actually save a family at Christmas Day. You know? Absolutely. I love the idea. And I wanted to tie it back into one of the aims of this podcast is to galvanize a film community or film family. Um, and I thought, you'd be able to share with us if we can give some shout outs to the latest editions. Uh, Cause is it Brian Lowell or Lowell? How do I pronounce his surname? Yeah. Brian Lund, Brian Lund. Yeah. So we've got the guys out and cause MacArthur is a key area of where we're going to film. So we've got the businesses out in that, that area that are really jumping on board and he's got that amazing Oz. Oz Funland. Um, Funland. Yeah. How do you, how would you describe Oz Funland? I can't. You have to go and see it for yourself. But it's kind of like if you ever been a kid and you had a, a a dream or a fascination with Wizards of Oz. It's like somebody gave you a big portion of money and you could just go out and build that big that that big version of your dream. Right, that's, that's the reality. Awesome. It's almost like a film studio. It's got everything <laughs> to the point that this is what happens when the script changes. You alluded to that earlier. So. We went out there and I saw the location and I met, I was like, oh, my God, this is even better than a shopping centre. This is where Steve as Santa's going to work because it's Funland. That's where everybody goes. That's brilliant. So he's, <laughs> it's Santa's going to be working there now. So that's a ha- – and it looks amazing. It's funny. Um, and then it's just perfect. So all of a sudden you've got that location because I went out there. There's infusers into the script and we have the business on board, which is great. And, and then we've got – uh, Jai and the guys at the the beer the beer shed yeah the beer shed brewing is, yeah brewery shed brewing which is bloody awesome and we have a bar scenes we have a Christmas party scene and all of a sudden we've got that location now and they're on board too so 
it's really, and this is what I've learned with the last projects, is it's, it, especially in these smaller uh, communities who don't get a lot of film content, it starts to bring a sense of identity and a sense of pride for your community and you are a part of something and you see the place where you walk every day on screen in a cinematic guise and all of a sudden you start to form a real new appreciation and that pride for it. And that's what's been the coolest thing of the projects I've had before. And the film lives forever as they travel all around the world and as a representation of you in your backyard and it's not depicted in a corny, negative, stereotypical fashion. It's actually done in a classy cinematic light and you start to, you know, I think get a new appreciation for the area where you live where often, you know, I call it the poetry of everyday life starts to become a bit monotonous. You see it through somebody else's eyes on a film camera and you start to go, holy shit, wow. Then all of a sudden you're trailblazed and more production happens and the businesses and community in that area who film and TV might be foreign to starts to become uh, something that it's not and then and, uh, new opportunities springboard from that. That's one of the coolest things about filmmaking in the region. And I love it because we're celebrating as well Western Sydney. Do you plan on shooting around your old stomping ground? Yeah, there's a few areas if we can get them. Um, but, yeah, Western Sydney is just I mean, they're, they're all my old stopping grounds. I went to MacArthur University. Are you a Nepean? I, I was a Nepean guy, graduate, UWS, Western Sydney, right. Nepean. MacArthur, I spent time in MacArthur, spent time at Nepean there at Warrington and Kingswood, spent time at Parramatta and Rydalmere, so even at Hawkesbury. So, But I do all the drives down from Penrith to the Northern Road. And so all, I kind of know the terrain. Yes. Um, and I guess it is all of Western Sydney, but it's a coda for we can't get to everywhere. No, of course not. a lot of those areas. But, yeah, even the inspiration, even the talent, people, it'll all be sort of canvas from those, from those locations. Uh, look, I think what I'd like to, I want to go back and just, again, say thank you to Brian and Jai. I know there'll be others and we'll, we'll mention them as well as this series goes along and as those backers um, keep pledging. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I'll also try to include links to their websites in the show notes as well. So uh, people can check those yeah. out. And I thought, you know, to wrap up the first episode and let's put a bow on it. If you were to keep a journal on this cinematic project, what would today's entry be? Ooh, today's. Well, today was the Oscars. So, um, it, and we actually did a little special crowdfunding perk, two for one Oscar, Oscar, uh, <laughs> Oscar offer. Um, but today's being the Oscars and being the new the new world of cinema, essentially, just talking about hope and possibility and moment. Well, my favourite film of last year was Nomadland and I like The Sound of Metal. Um, these tiny indie movies that honestly weren't made with, without the favours that we had for Broken Book Week. They weren't made for much more. And it's just um, not just for my films but for every other independent filmmaker out there. Like it's really possible to make something good um, and that can cross over. Even though sometimes it feels impossible, it's actually really possible. If you look at all the titles, they're all independent movies mostly, um, not big budgets. Some had some names, others didn't. Um, names always help you cross through, but 
that wasn't the first film for most of these filmmakers either. So, um, and you track down their first films to get to the second film, it's really possible to go beyond and break expectations. So that's what I reminded myself today. It's like this is might be a small film, but you can't look at it like that. You've got to look at it like this has got the potential to be anything. Um, and as soon as you sort of get late, get some kind of complacency where it's not a small film, you start to get lazy. I just think of what I do have. Um, just be grateful to the people that are around you and super positive and hopeful because you just never know what's going to happen. Not saying we're going to win an Oscar, but if you probably asked the filmmakers of Nomadland two years ago, that they'd be in that situation now they would laugh. I'm sure. So especially the sound of metal, the guys who made the sound of metal, absolutely. So they're hard to make, but the irony is people love them when they're made and they want more of them but not a lot of them are getting made. So it's one of the, they win the awards, everybody loves them, they discover them, and unfortunately they're hard to get made so we don't make many of them. doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But, um, yeah, so that was today's Molly Lasker reminder was just everything is important and any big things can come from small things. To quote Paul Kelly, we could probably finish off with that song from, from Paul. Paul, if you're out there. I'm available. <laughs> Thank you again for your time, Heath. Um, look, and remember, everyone, Christmas, Christmas, I should say, is a time for giving. So please jump online, check out the Indiegogo campaign, www.indiegogo.com forward slash projects forward slash Christmas hashtag and help smash that crowdfunding budget by becoming a backer today. Look, I hope you'll join me next week as we hang a pair of Flano Christmas stockings above the Weber, fill them with a prawn tail or two with updates on the crowdfunding campaign, learn what Heat's favourite Chrissy films are and discuss his bromance uh, for Steve Lemaquan. So until... I thought you were going to say... Yeah, sorry. I thought you were going to say Steve uh, Steve Cigar. <laughs> we can also bring in, definitely for the next one. Um, so until then... Merry Christmas, brah. Thank you, mate. Thanks for listening to Diary of a Crowdfunded Film. Subscribe to hear all future episodes. And if you enjoyed the show, leave us a review. For more info, please visit Diary of a Crowdfunded Film on Facebook.